Five seconds of silence. Mamma mia. Here we go again. And then you come in. Chickatita <laughs> Fernando. Okay, you know what? The, 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 the vine's going back on. The vine's going back on. All right, here we go. Here we go. Okay, all right, Edwin. All right, Edwin. Here we go. Yeah, please. Be respectful of the five seconds of silence. Secret Movie Clubbers, and welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 58, where we are going to talk about Steven Spielberg's debut film, Duel, made in 1971, and the return to theaters, which coincides with our return to the Secret Movie Club Theater, which, if you know our history, we opened it up February 2020, and six weeks later had to shut it down because of COVID, but because of that, we started this podcast, and uh, as of May 13th, we hinted at it last week, but we did it. We had our first weekend. The first weekend's in the books. We were able to do every single night. And so we'll talk about being back at our theater as well. And in honor of that, and just because he's an awesome dude and he's always a great guest, we have special guest Bri Robert, who has been with us before and also attended some of the movies the first week. Amazing musician, amazing movie lover, the guy who got me to see Possessor, which disturbed the hell out of me. So maybe I'll talk about that a little later because you just kept saying all 2020, Bri, you were just like, you got to see Possessor, bro. Have you seen Possessor? It's like, no, not yet. Have you seen Possessor? It's like, okay, I got to see Possessor, I guess. And I did, so we'll talk about it. Uh, but give it up for Bri Robert back in the house. Thank you, Bri. Hey, guys. What's going on? Good to see you all again. And not just see you virtually like it's been the last year. I've actually seen you all in person, and I'm happy to, to, to say I've done that now. Not to brag, but we hugged. We hugged. We did. It was great. We did, and I got a photo of it. Frozen in time like a mosquito in amber that will one day <laughs> create dinosaurs. It's a great photo because Ann and Scott were literally having a genuine moment and Daniel and I just wanted to be involved. You photobombed. The, yes, referring to a photo I took of uh, Secret Movie Clubbers. We hadn't seen each other in 15 months and I was uh, at the door and Secret Movie Clubber Scott Heaton was hugging Secret Movie Clubber Ann and then Bri and Daniel right behind them hugged too. It was beautiful. Who else is with us today? Mamma Mia, here we go again. Give me, give me, give me that fresh podcast content. It's Daniel Fernando Oz. Yeah. That's a long intro. Daniel, I think you can bring that one back to the workshop. <laughs> hey, well, yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll work it out with Edwin. I think he pulled it off. Uh, it's me, the people's champion, Carl Lloyd Cruz. Hello, America. It's me again. You know, it's another day of can't stop the music because you can't stop the music. Yeah, what Edwin means is since he saw Mamma Mia, all he's been doing is watching Mamma Mia and Mamma Mia, here we go again. Back to back to back to back to back. Uh, so welcome, everybody. Announcements for this week. So now we begin our second week, which is in some ways as jam-packed and crazy as the first. So we've opened the Secret Movie Club Theater, which is our 99-seat theater in the Arts District in downtown L.A. And this week on Saturday night, we are doing Get Carter and Point Blank, the original Michael King Get Carter, the Lee Marvin Point Blank on 35. We would love to have you. But earlier that day, we are doing our grand reopening at the Million Dollar Theater Movie Palace where we now have actually was kind of cool, like contributed to this palace that's been around for 120 years. Daniel, Josh, our projectionist sound, maestro Tom Ruff and myself uh, were there last Saturday hanging surround speakers. So we have put surround sound in the million dollar theater or we're in the middle of it, God willing. So and we are going to be showing Scarface and Carlito's Way on 35 millimeter. That is going to be our first double bill. This is a movie palace that opened like 100 years ago. Let's say it was Sid Grauman's first theater in Los Angeles way before the Chinese. I took Daniel and Josh into Sid Grauman's office, which is kind of nerding out, but it's pretty awesome because Sid Grauman is the guy who made the Chinese theater and he sort of represented when movies became the de facto popular pop art culture form of the country. And anyway, blah, blah, blah. We're going to be there. Scarface, Carlito's Way. We are also this week doing The Last Jedi at the drive-in on Friday. I did not know I was poking a 10,000 pound bear. They're beating it with a stick when I decided that I was going to program that movie. I think The Last Jedi, social media post may be the most debated post we've ever had in secret movie clubs history well craig craig tried to talk about how controversial the last jedi is and the internet <laughs> went against mal you malfunction N nerds across the planet got so mad at you their psychic energy destroyed your internet i think the important <laughs> thing to point out though is most of the negative comments on our post are from people who do not live anywhere near Los Angeles that would be coming to these events. They have found this thing through Facebook's algorithm and advertising and have come into the post 
to be upset. The conversation around Last Jedi is so poisonous. Just this right now is making me so tense. Yeah, I'm like so <laughs> upset already. Yeah, it's a it's a whole thing. We'll have to talk about it another time. But in the interest of our guest Brian Robert, who's here to <laughs> talk about Duel and Possessor and coming back to theaters. So yeah, Friday, May 21st. You'll hear this in the morning. If you want to come and join what might turn into just an all out free for all brawl melee of Last Jedi fans and then uh, Last Jedi haters, we're gonna be at the uh, Glendale. Sears parking lot. Movie will start at 8.15 p.m. We'd love to have you. And then Sunday, we're doing Moana. So if you want something mellow and not controversial, I don't Does Moana set anybody off? I guess people who hate Lin-Manuel Miranda's success. Racist. Yeah, yeah. That's our schedule for the week. And there's much more to come, but let's get to it. Uh, Last Thursday, May 13th, we showed Steven Spielberg's debut movie, Duel, on 35mm. It actually started as a TV movie of the week. It was 75 minutes, written by Richard Matheson, very famous writer who is, you know, a lot of people know Richard Matheson, if not from Duel, then from his novel, I Am Legend, which was then remade as a... Vincent Price movie called The Last Man on Earth, which was then remade as a Charlton Heston movie called Omega Man, which was then remade as a Will Smith movie called I Am Legend and will probably be remade again. But Richard Matheson is this amazing pulp writer, so he wrote this incredible teleplay about a middle-class white-collar guy heading to a business meeting who gets into a road rage duel with a truck and we never fully see the trucker. Steven Spielberg directed it. It was so successful that they actually brought Spielberg back to do 15 more minutes and they released it as a feature all over the world, a 90-minute feature. So it is really, it's, we're not bending anything. It was Spielberg's debut feature. We showed that as our first film back at the Secret Movie Club Theater after 15 months dark. That movie has a lot of special importance to me, which I'll get into when it's my turn. Brian was there. Connor was there. In fact, everybody was there who's here on the Secret Movie Club podcast. You know, it's one of those films that I, I just, I love watching and I love rewatching and I see so many different things each time. This time around, the interesting thing, the correlations obviously between this and Jaws, there's so many of them that you can you can go through. But the one that got me interesting this time was the school bus sequence. And it just reminded me of Roy Scheider's, the way he approached the beach when he saw everyone in the beach and he wanted everyone to run to the water. And his just manic panic that he had of like, everybody's going to die. And and that same feeling I felt was with the, the school bus because Weaver's yelling at everyone to get out of the road and the bus driver's like, it's fine. Everything's great as long as they don't, you know, get run over. As long as they stay out of the road, it's fine. They're just being kids. And he's going over the top seeing something way more because of what he's experienced, which is that correlation I felt with Roy Scheider and Jaws and, you know, knowing that, that it's not just this okay thing that it, it's fine. Everything will be fine. I don't know. And obviously the, the, the other things with the roar at the end is it's literally the same sound that they used in Jaws and Duel. And it's from Land of the Unknown, the T-Rex sound. And it's, I think, the most used T-Rex sound ever. The death of the truck at the end of Duel and then the death of the shark at the end of Jaws. Did they also use the roar in Jurassic Park? Because Spielberg considers Jurassic Park Duel yet again. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, because I, yeah, I know they've always, he's always said that Jaws is that sequel unofficially, obviously, to Duel. And I think it's the same because I know it is literally the most used. T-Rex sound out there everywhere, anywhere. Because I think it's from really early, that early film, The Land of the, the Unknown, for sure. Duel Rules. I'll give you that. I do think it's one of those, like, the simplistic plot works really well, but it, at the 90-minute cut really pushes sort of everything you can get from this scenario to a point that I think some of it works with, like, the tension. Like, the restaurant sequence is just such a long detour that Spielberg really milks for every second he can get away with in terms of building tension that I think is really effective. But seeing it a few times in a row, you do start to notice kind of the slowdown. But I guess those moments are important to then make the return to the streets feel big again. I think that the biggest success for it is casting Dennis Weaver. You need this sort of everyday man aesthetic. If you were to make this nowadays, I feel like you would have to have someone, a big name attached to it and... It would be a budget that sort of gives away because I think part of it is this in terms of a debut feature, it feels like someone trying everything that they have in their wheelhouse to make something work. And I think those imperfections within that make it so special because it does feel like literally anywhere he can fit a camera, he's putting it just to keep things interesting visually and add the tension. And he's shooting things on super long lenses to make things look fast because anytime it's not, you can tell that they're really not going that fast. The amount of times that we slow down just to have like the truck slowly into the frame and the school bus sequence. Uh, talked about a lot with debuts but i love debuts to see sort of what the director is going to become what's so engraved in the core of who they are that they can't help but put it in their first movie and it's still there in their newest stuff Duel shouldn't work. It's kind of like a Twilight Zone episode, I guess, to a degree. Stretched to an hour and a half and works. And it's funny you said that, Daniel, just because trivia tidbit, uh, Richard Matheson wrote quite a few Twilight Zone scripts. Button Button being my favorite by far. Uh, on Wikipedia, 
he actually pitched it as an idea for various television series before deciding to write it as a short story. Yeah, he got, he got like no attention for it, I guess. And it was funny because even when I think it was it was Spielberg's secretary who gave him the Playboy magazine and Spielberg was so kind of like, what, what is this? What are you giving me? I, I feel weird about reading a script from, from a Playboy. And the secretary was like, oh, don't, just don't w- watch the pictures. And he was just absolutely enamored by the uh, what he read in the, in, the, in the magazine. I'm sure reading it as just truck chases man, man evades. It doesn't probably s- scream off the page necessarily, though I guess at the helm's of a, a great writer. It's such a visual thing. And I think really important, too, is the, the sound of it. Sitting so close to the screen for this one, the sound makes the thing because it when the truck is on screen, it is unbelievably loud at all times. It's a good movie. I mentioned earlier this year that I've seen all Spielbergs. I don't think this is, like, top tier, but it's probably, like, second, third. It's, it's up there for me, at least. I did not get a chance to rewatch it for reasons I'll probably get into at the end of the podcast. This almost feels like the closest Spielberg ever got to making, like, a Stephen King thing, even though I know it's not Stephen King. Though I think Matheson influenced King, right? Stephen King's obsessed with Duel. When he saw Duel, I think he thought it was one of the greatest movies ever made. And Maximum Overdrive uh, was his trying to exercise Duel because he used to show his kids Duel all the time. King loves this movie. I didn't even know that. That's interesting because it really does, I think more than any other Spielberg's films, feels like a King story in a way. And King loves Matheson too. It's probably more fair to say that King is a huge Matheson fan. Yeah, I know because I know he really likes uh, Hell House. And I like how the animal way they portray the driver in the truck it's a weird hybrid i don't know if spielberg ever did something like this again having a bad guy that is both in some way human but also that animalistic usually his human villains are a little more he doesn't have like michael myers type (laughs) human villains it's more of you know like you think i think about like nedry in jurassic park who's quote unquote you know a villain in that movie and he's a very human character i only saw it once like two years ago at this midnight training we did at the vista it's definitely a movie i've thought about a lot it's been a big inspiration for some stuff i've worked on in my own time a, a script i want to do and more than anything i want to know what happened to that lady snakes I hope she got her snakes back. <laughs> Do you think it's because, like, there's there's some type of appeal to stuff like this because it is, quote-unquote, so it's such a simple story that you have to create all of these situations that make it so compelling? As an inspiration, that's so interesting because it seems almost like something, not necessarily the car chases, but something you could pull off because it's like this thing that was handed to you that sounds so simple on paper, and then as you dive into what makes it interesting and complex, it's suddenly like this creative spreadsheet of all these things you can do to make something interesting versus, you know, if you made this a standard, if you had a lesser filmmaker create it, say, it could, it could be a really simple thing that's not that interesting, but instead it's a 90-minute thing that works from front to back, basically. I don't want to talk about my idea because this is a public forum. I don't know anybody's stealing it. But there is definitely part of it that, it, to a certain degree, I agree that like the car chases are maybe inaccessible. But I also think if I'm going to make some sort of action-y, thriller-y type of movie, it doesn't seem that far out of their own possibilities. You can get cars. Uh, I know, Craig, you were talking about some of the ways they film him going fast as they were actually going like 25 miles an hour and they just had a super long lens on and they're just filming out in the desert you know as a low budget filmmaker as well and that's a big part of it is this idea I have is very small and so I think when I saw it I was kind of like okay like I can make a movie that kind of functions in that sort of way also it's important to point out the opening of Sonic Adventure 2 pays homage to this you get chased by this truck in the city escape level and that's very important for me do a good picture that is honestly one of the greatest made for tv films ever made i wanted to see this on 35 for the longest time since you screened it at the vista for midnight but i couldn't because i was working at the concession stand and i was very heartbroken and was a pain in the butt because um it was a short movie and i had to clean up fast so thanks craig watching on the big screen again i forgot how great it was I forgot how how intense and and scary it is because you're being chased by this crazy truck driver for you did nothing for no apparent reason and it's the ultimate game of cat and mouse ever. The editing in this movie is incredible, especially the scene where he's trying to go up the hill and the truck driver just right behind him and, and it goes so to him and to car to him to the car and a close up shot. They're like, come on, come on! And that diner scene, I, I always think that the truck driver is in the diner scene. He's in there somewhere. You just don't know where he is. You still never see him all the way through the end of the picture 
I'm surprised Spielberg never used Dennis Weaver again. I would have thought he would have put him in Sugarland Express or Jaws or 1941. He's very good in this movie. He's, I feel like this is probably the closest, well, he did Poltergeist, but I feel like this is the closest thing to a horror movie he's ever come to because he has a knack for horror stuff. I think War of the Worlds, and we've talked about it before, I think War of the Worlds is a straight-up horror movie. Masquerading is a summer blockbuster. Oh, the ending to, for the picture is incredible, but I had a theory I just, I just thought of. I feel like they really wanted to blow up the truck but they didn't have it in the budget so all you do is crash it but later on for Jaws they had the budget and say, like, you know what let's blow up the shark you know and give it the roar sound like a duel let's blow it up so to me I think Jaws is purposely the way the truck was supposed to go in duel just a mass explosion Spielberg should just do a director's cut of duel where when the truck finally hits the bottom they just show the shark blowing up in the ocean <laughs> I don't see that I don't care I'll see that <laughs> but Roy Schneider's holding a, a walkie talkie uh, you know and what Edwin's referencing was really interesting because we all talked about duel after we saw it and I never thought about it because I'm obsessed with the film and I, I think it's an amazing picture I don't miss anything or feel like oh that was a missed opportunity but you guys all pointed it out, and I think it's totally valid. They keep showing that the truck says flammable the whole film. In gigantic letters. <laughs> yeah, you make a really good point that in filmmaking, there's a rule that if you show a gun in Act 1, someone's got to grab it or do something with it in Act 3. I mean, that's a real reduction of the rule, but if you plant something, you got to pay it off, is the idea. It's called Chekhov's gun. And if you're not going to pay it off, then you have to do something even better, if it's a misdirection or whatever. So it is totally valid that that truck says flammable, and at the end, it goes down this cliff if it doesn't explode, I can get why people would be like, why didn't that explode? When I first saw Duel, I really liked it. I really, really liked it because I'm a huge Spielberg fan. And I thought, oh, this is great. But every time I see it, for me, it is top tier Spielberg. For me, it's probably in his top five. Billy Wilder said this thing that I've thought about. He said, you can either tell a simple story in a complex way, or you can tell a complex story in a simple way. But where you can see a lot of people who don't understand cinema is where they try to do a complex story in a complex way. And he said, just cinema can't handle that. Or they do a simple story in such a simple way that it's a little dry. And I think that Duel is a very, very, very simple story. And just for a music illusion, like Keith Moon, the drummer of The Who, said he loved Pete Townsend's synth riffs because that would be the backbone and he wouldn't have to carry the beat of a Who song, but he could fill it in. He could fill it in with like all these crazy Keith Moon, just like drum things, these drum fills. And I think that what you see in Duel is Spielberg's like, oh, this thing sells itself. Literally, it's this guy in a truck hunting this guy in a little car and he just somehow can't shake this guy. We get the story right Right away. And from there, Spielberg gets to do all this Spielbergian tension stuff that to me, I, I just I think it's a, a textbook in how to make movies. I'm obsessed with the Spielberg oneer. And we've talked about this. My two favorite directors of single shots are Orson Welles and Steven Spielberg. And it's not the Orson Welles touch of evil opener, which everyone's like, oh, you're referring to the touch of evil opener that goes for five minutes. Single shots really flashy. No, I'm talking about all the Orson Welles oneers no one ever talks about, like the Orson Welles oneer in Citizen Kane, which is the whole setup for Rosebud when the kid is outside with the sled and the mom signs him over to the banker and the dad lets him go. That is a eight minute shot that no one ever realizes is an eight minute shot. And Spielberg is a master of those two. The ones where you're like, oh my God, this shot's incredible, but you don't realize it till the third or fourth or fifth thing. And Daniel, what you were talking about, where you're like, this is Spielberg and no one can say that Spielberg wasn't Spielberg from the beginning. When Dennis Weaver crashes and goes into the restaurant, he goes to the restroom, he washes his face, he comes out and at the end of the shot, the truck is there. That is an uninterrupted handheld shot. And it is so well done because you're not thinking, oh, a guy is hand holding this. I'm not going to name check the flashier singles, but I'm actually not a fan other than Scorsese's Goodfellas shot. Other than that one, which is so flashy, but it works. I'm not a fan of the shots where you're like, oh, it's one shot. Oh, it's going. It keeps going. It keeps going. It keeps going. I don't have anything against it. It's a color and a palette, and I totally respect people who do it. But I think the ones where you're getting like, I don't know, 30 shots in one shot and you never realize that he never cut, that's like mastery to me. There are so many things that cinema does that very few filmmakers can do. And I think one of them is generating true tension. I can only think of a few filmmakers, literally, I probably I could count them on 10 fingers or fewer, who you get really nervous when you know you're, you're like, it's, it's a scene in the middle of the movie and you're like, well, the, the character's got to live through this. 
and yet you're just like your shoulders go up you get really tense like the opening of Raiders I've seen Raiders 80 times and when the stone door goes down when Alfred Molina ditches Indiana Jones and he's like trying to get the rope and you see the door I'm always like oh no he's not gonna get through it but he gets through it every time I think Spielberg has a talent that almost no one other than Hitchcock and maybe you could name me somebody else but like Hitchcock and Spielberg I don't know anyone else who can do it like they do it you're right because even I, I've heard that like even the comparison of Duel with basically being the birds on the road right I mean Lynch does it for me just because of the way he kind of will like turn things on its head where you can have this like one sequence will be this great weird feel-good moment and the next you're just like i am the most you know uncomfortable in the world i mean wild at heart is a great we talked about that as the last time i was on where it's it's one of those films where halfway through you're like this is just bonkers and fun and crazy and then defoe shows up and you're like oh my god i feel awful and terrible and horrible and i don't know he has that ability to me where i just watch certain things and just feel certain ways i mean a razor head especially just does that to me where that tension is constantly there for sure but not in, in a way that you're like you're right spielberg and alfred hitchcock are their own world of doing that yeah maybe that's because it, it's always weird when you say something like that because when we're done with this podcast we'll all think of five directors or you know i think with them especially it's the simmering tension that they nail like in munich the house phone bombing scene the way it's orchestrated and laid out you have all of these moments you know what's supposed to happen and you see it play out in mostly real time and it's very slow and tense and then you just keep adding details that make everything worse like you have a kid come into the room to go answer the phone you have all these little things that make every time you think you're almost to the point that you're already anxious about you're now a little bit heightened on it and i think he does that a few times like minority report has a few of those the sequence where the drone is hunting for tom cruise oh that's a great sequence yeah there's several of them in war of the worlds he just has like a knack for i think he, he takes tension in the same way hitchcock does he takes the tension but he makes it rather than being like this minute long thing it's now this five minute thing and there's all these little details that make things worse and worse for you as the audience because half the time the characters don't know it's getting worse for them necessarily but we do and i think that's sort of part of his mastery of it i think the coens are really good at it too and i think um and maybe i'm biased but i think sam raimi's really good at it you know after watching a simple plan last week with you connor i even have to agree that whole entire experience was tension filled to no end and just the way it built out of something literally a simple plan into that wild. Stephen King said the way you do it. I've never heard someone explain it so simply and so understandably. And I'm like, well, that's why you're Stephen King. He said the whole key to that is you have to have characters you really, really care about. And then he said, you've got to hang them out and just let them twist in the wind. And I've never heard anyone say it like that, but I was like, oh, that's why it or the uh, stand. And it's an interesting way to think about it, because I think where a lot of directors go wrong is they're good at the technical aspect of it, but they don't know they don't have a feel for character. I'm not saying your characters have to be heroes or totally likable, but you have to have characters you care about, about what's going to happen to them. And I think Spielberg clearly gets that. I mean, he's he's one of the best at love people so it's it's this weird thing where like he loves his characters and then he puts them in horrible situations and you're like ah brian de palma uh blowout the the scene where he's trying to get uh nancy allen by the killer and he's all you hear is the microphone in your ear and all the sound and he's trying to find her where the hell she's at it's a very strong tension in that film de palma does that a lot and somewhat he does it a lot in his films but blowout is the main one that does that a lot like is is she gonna live is she gonna live is she gonna make it is travolta gonna get to her soon but you know how that ends i admire de palma's cinema because it's so cinematic but I don't sense that he loves his characters. This has always been my thing about De Palma is that I think on a cinematic level, I'm always like, I could never do that. <laughs> I don't have that talent. But then I always feel like, does this guy like people? <laughs> and I, I can never figure out if he likes people or not, which is why I don't get all that worked up in a De Palma movie when, although I actually think Blowout, I'm with you guys. I think Blowout is one of his best movies, hands down. Maybe his best. Although I'm a huge fan of Carrie, Scarface, Carlito's way. Sounds like you like a lot of his movies. I do, though, but I, I think, I, but you know, this is a guy, this is a cat who's made 30 films. I would say those are probably my four favorites. Kind of would agree me, agree me on this one. I, I think Fan of the Paradise is his best film he's ever done. I'm just saying. Well, now we're just off topic. I want us to move on. I do, I do agree with you. It's fa I, for me, it's Phantom and Blowout, though. Tied. I don't want to leave off on Duel without this, which is this is the movie that made Steven Spielberg. You could say Mean Streets made Martin Scorsese. You know, you could say Good Time made the Softy Brothers or Hereditary made Ari Aster or Rushmore made Wes Anderson or Boogie Nights made PTA. I mean, you, you know, there's often a movie you're like, that was the one that really... We're watching the opening movie of, of the person who's going to become Steven Spielberg. 
and debut movies are fascinating because it, like you guys were saying they're always early in their career so they're obviously going to develop and get other collaborators and mature into you know their middle phase which is often their best phase but nevertheless Duel is as an opening movie how do you what does it say to you about who Spielberg is who will become what do you glean from it that guy's going places. <laughs> I think it kind of says everything. He's clearly someone who will use, with what we know about the history behind like Jaws and stuff, he's someone who will use every resource at his disposal to get a product that works in the end. And you sort of see all of his fascinations in filmmaking and his influences. He wears them on his sleeve, but also works to make them his own, which I think is important because the distinction of, of what he shares with the filmmakers he loves, but also what makes him uniquely him is already on display. And for a debut, that seems impressive because I think a lot of people get caught up in wanting to emulate the people that they love to a point that it doesn't feel necessarily like their own work it feels like a very heavily borrowed thing his obsessions are already on display and to see him sort of master his craft more so moving forward with stuff within the same decade as this comes out is sort of insane i think it's a movie where you're seeing a filmmaker start at 11 and i just don't know many other filmmakers where they're opening film and obviously i'm an unabashed spielberg fan i think he's one of the greatest filmmakers ever in any country ever and i think you're seeing somebody start at an 11 and then go to a 15 in his later movies. And I just don't know that you see that all that often in debut movies. I mean, it's definitely the attention to detail he had in that first movie. I mean, that's one thing that carried on, obviously. Like, you watch so many of those things, the attention to shots, and just the plans that he had going into it for such a simplistic, you know, narrative is kind of wild. I mean, just the smallest details. Like, for me, one of my favorite things in that film is the license plates at the front of the truck. Like, you know, that little, like, the previous victims almost, you know, is what it looks like <laughs> in that truck. And I love that, you know, and just even the fact that like that, I just remember they did like a casting to pick the truck. He did like a full casting call on it and he went for that oldest, most worn and abused because it looks like he is the god of the road that's been here forever and how dare you cross my path. And I don't know, that attention to detail and just being able to bring that out into such a character development of a truck and have that be your debut feature. Like you said, he's started at the level. We showed Duel as our first movie back. We have been doing podcasts and a whole bunch of stuff and drive-ins for the last 15 months. But uh, March of 2020, we showed A Lizard in a Woman's Skin, a pretty awesome Lucio Fulci Giallo. And then that was it. And then two days later or a day later, we, we knew we were going to be shut down. We had to stop in the middle of our programming. Cut to 15 months later, we showed Duel. And suddenly we have a weekend of movies in the theater. And although we're observing COVID rules and regs, right now 50% capacity we're asking people to keep their masks on except when they eat concessions we have a section for people who are vaccinated and actually I was really heartened every night 80% of our audience to 90% of our audience fully vaccinated and by the way no judgments no judgments because some people can't get them some people have been too busy I don't think you should jump to the conclusion that because someone's not vaccinated it means anything other than they haven't had the chat who knows but the people who weren't vaccinated totally rolled with and we did it for their protection where we could seat them those folks had to be six feet away from everybody but nonetheless weekend in the books back in theaters what does it feel like it feels great um you know i actually went last week with daniel connor casey we all went to go see something we went to see the scott pilgrim movie and it was in an amc it was you know nice to be back at a big theater like that but there's just something about these independent theaters and coming back and sitting in a place where it just feels this communal experience that i've missed so much it's what sold me years ago on secret movie club and getting into it it's just the you know going to the vista sitting in my favorite seat and just experiencing that communal experience with everything and to just have that in the club, it's been really nice to see that again and just see familiar faces, see you guys, and just, again, share a film together. We can all watch so many of these things on our TVs, our tablets, anything you want these days. But just to have that experience where we're all getting together for this planned thing, is it's like nothing else. It's just really special. The beautiful contradiction of movie going is that it clearly is a communal experience. And I think all you have to do is sit and watch a movie on your own and be like, I, you know, I love doing that, but it is totally different. I've been the projectionist all weekend and we did after hours twice and I had to run to the restroom the second time and Daniel was in the booth to let me give me like a 30 second break. And I was walking through the theater and it was one of the really funny moments in after hours and the whole audience erupted in laughter. I couldn't, it was this great feeling. One of the reasons I fell in love with the Vista was going, I think it was opening night for Avengers Age of Ultron. And it's why those movies have a little bit more of a special place in my heart, not just because of my childhood but because of how much it sort of connected me to the vista this city my new friends i had made when i first moved to los angeles that you know community experience 300 people reacting to you know something altogether. there's something about that that's 
pretty great. I, I couldn't wait for you to program 35 movies, so I ended up going to the Hollywood Legion. But being in the theater is very nice in front of a crowd, you know, cheering for the picture, you know, clapping, applause, all that kind of stuff. And being back at the club was really cool. Again, I got the chance to see Duel and Goodfellas on 35, both movies. I worked the event for because both of them were sold out shows and it was a pain in the ass. So I blame you, Craig, for that. But it was nice to sit in a theater, watch a great movie on 35, even though you kind of messed up on the changeovers like three times already. <laughs> but that's okay. I didn't say anything. No, no, you should that we should talk about that just real quickly. No, Edwin, one of the things that I treasure about you and I this is said very directly is you're a very direct and honest person. A lot of people are not. A lot of people will be like, oh, it was great. And they'll say that about your script. They'll say that about your rough cut. And that is not helpful especially when you know it wasn't great. And so for our audience, I was the projectionist all weekend. And although the dual night went pretty well, and then the Saturday night went pretty well, our Friday night, I just must have been exhausted. I was off. I didn't know the prints. My changeovers were awful, awful. And what that means, audience, if you don't know what we're talking about, is when you show movies on film, you have two projectors, and every 20 minutes you have to change over to the next projector, and the print is supposed to tell you when to do that with these dots that are in the upper right-hand screen. Uh, There's no excuse on After Hours. I was just off on that. Goodfellas, though, turned out to be this horrible print with three or four changeover markings at the end of every reel. I just learned, I was like, okay, I'm going to have to tell all my projectionists, starting with myself, I'm going to have to go to the tail of every reel. I'm going to have to look at what the last frame is. I'm going to make my own changeover mark, and I am going to actually create a list that says this is when the changeover is, and that'll prevent it. And it actually taught me, if you're going to show film, there's a level of craftsmanship as a projectionist that you either have to buy into and take pride in, or you shouldn't be a projectionist. You can't just throw the reels up and be like, I'll depend on the changeover from last time. So I take full responsibility, Edwin, and I hope uh, this upcoming week I do better. I mean, I I know, Craig, you put in the most work there up at the club, but I have a lot of pride in that place, you know? I mean, we made those little murals. I think me and you, Craig, we probably put together maybe like 10% of the chairs in there, about, roughly. And you hung posters, you did. We did a night where we were like hanging posters. Yeah, I just have a, I have a lot of pride in that place and seeing people back at it and getting to enjoy it again is uh, I didn't get to stay for the movie. I just kind of popped in. It was it was it was emotional for me. You know, I, I went to, to the AMC's last week for theaters and it's great to be back in the theater in general with an audience. But there's something special and we're very spoiled for it in Los Angeles where you get these spaces that are beyond just watching a movie. It is about the people that you see that with, whether you know them or not. Locations like ours and other sort of independent theaters, you're, you're making a, a conscious decision to go to these. You're seeing older movies and you're picking formats that represent something beyond just a screening that you can replicate at home. And so within that, you find people, I mean, the amount of friends, we're all friends here. We have this community of people that are not just audience members and people that buy tickets, but real friends. And I think that's what makes the club beyond just the behind the scenes stuff and sort of that energy when you come out of seeing this 1971 movie, the first movie of Steven Spielberg on film, you come out to the to lobby and even though your distance and things aren't quite the same yet, you still have like this palpable energy of people that are so thrilled by it and they're talking about it and, you know, conversations. I mean, we would stay an hour, hour and a half after each movie is just <laughs> in conversation when we know we have to wake up, you know, five hours later because that energy is something that I've craved and missed so much. I think I genuinely forgot about how that almost revitalizes you. I think it's because it's handmade, like what I was just saying. You know, I mean, I don't think Mr. AMC is building chairs or (laughs) running the projection booth for any of these AMC theaters. I was talking to uh, Marina and Kelly Jean, who we were working with, and they were talking about, like, working at a theater is not an appealing thing in, in the corporate sense, but there's something about the energy of theaters like these independent theaters that bring something different to the table. And I think the audience knows that everyone involved is has a passion for film you know and i think that's what makes it special too one of the great things about being at the vista at midnight for a movie or being at the secret movie club theater the million dollar theater is you know you're around people who love cinema and even though no one says anything there is an atmosphere in the air of people with a shared passion, sharing it and really being happy and really, you know, seeing what they want to do. And it's funny how you feel and sense those things without, you know, you don't talk to, you maybe talk to five, 10% of the people there if you talk to that many people. And yet all the people that you saw around, saw out of the corner of your eye, saw in their Suspiria t-shirts, saw looking at the posters, saw like, there's just something that kind of makes you excited and happy. Art is such a 
as a personal thing. So the way people take it and what the experience means to them is so unique. And I think it's important to have spaces because there's, I don't know, there's this anxiety, there's this sort of fear behind, you know, if you go into a record shop or something and there's this pretension to the employees, you suddenly feel like you're not a part of the world that you want to be in. And I think there's this danger in theaters too, that if, if it feels like a club that you can't be involved in the community of, you're intimidated to go. And it's hard for, in a city like this, you're spoiled for choice. And there's people that are so passionate that sometimes that passion can scare you off from being there because you don't feel welcome. And I think the biggest thing, what drew me into Secret Movie Club, and I think what you stand behind, Craig, and what I think all of us really work toward, and especially as the team expands, is to make it not exclusive, but inclusive in terms of the stuff we're screening and the stuff people are experiencing are from all walks of life, but also all types of taste. I think that's what makes things special. The difference between you haven't seen that and you haven't seen that? Right. The excitement of like genuinely like, I am stoked for you to see this, you know, and that kind of thing. And I think that is the biggest thing. I remember our good friend Anne with, with talking about Twin Peaks. I remember saying to her a while back, she hadn't seen it. And she was like, oh, no, I know. And almost like a cowers. And I'm like, no, I'm so genuinely excited that you now have the opportunity to see this. And I think that's the one thing I've found in everybody I've met with this. Like, let me watch episode eight of The Return with you. <laughs> right, exactly. Let me know when that happens so we can do this together. But I mean, I remember the first thing I came to was, uh, speaking of Twin Peaks, was Fire Walk with me. It was a screening I did as a one-off. And it was, you know, it was a great night. It was with a few friends. And then I came back for the night you guys did Eraserhead. And that was when I fell in love with Secret Movie Club. And it was, Craig, you're the way you did everything with the setting up that night. And then I hung after for the communal experience. And I know that was when you were recording videos for David Lynch for the experience of the night. Yeah, that was a special night. David Lynch wrote us. And then, of course, you know, leading on uh, the many, many, many nights that have happened after that, there was something just so special about standing on that corner of Sunset in Hollywood till four o'clock in the morning talking about film and just having this moment that it doesn't feel real. You know, you're on this site of just so much history and it doesn't feel real, but I've never felt more alive than having nights like that. And I think getting to return to that now, it makes this last year and everything we've gone through sort of like, okay, we can do this now. We can get through it. You know, and I, I said that even the other night, there was a moment where it was like Daniel, Scott, and Ann, and you and I, we were all just standing there. And I was like, we're in this moment right here. Like this last year or so, we didn't know what the next day was going to look like. So to be in that moment where we could all just look at each other and feel like we're sharing this moment again, it was special, and I'm excited about being able to return to that again. It's kind of like the Goonies. You know how they say, this is our time, our time down here right <laughs> now. God, it feels like that right now. I'm just glad when I was in Scott Pilgrim the other week, I was not anxious because of COVID-related reasons. I was anxious for entirely different reasons <laughs> relating to my personal life. And that was the reason I couldn't pay attention to the movie, but I was totally fine with all the COVID stuff. If not progress, it's at least change. This conversation is going to continue. We're just one weekend. And, you know, being humble, too, who knows what the future holds? Count no man happy until the end is known. And yet at the same time, I would say as a first week, it felt good. You can, you know, you have to be honest. Either you have to say, well, I'm really worried now or and to see everybody back. It feels there's promise and potential to showing movies. And I feel it. And I feel that. It's coming back. People are not shunning the theaters. People are coming back to the theaters. And I hope that continues. And we'll talk about it more and let you know week by week, chapter by chapter. Pop culture final thoughts. Um, I watched a few things this week, specifically Sneakers, which is a Robert Redford heist movie from 92 that is so good. It's basically sort of like in the computer hacking realm of the early 90s, but sort of gets it right. Redford and his team are, are this agency that gets hired by usually like US agencies to crack into things, to figure out their security faults. And then they get into one of those, you know, the, the black box mysteries of this thing that could destroy everything. And it rules. That's all, that's all I can say about it. I also watched Top Gun for the first time, which I've never seen. Oh, how is that? What do you think? It's very homoerotic <laughs> in the best way. And not just in like a few jokes that I thought it would. It just like kind of, there's this very horny energy to all of it. You're starting Pride Month early. I, I didn't realize that it's just like a hangout movie. Like half of that movie is just this Linklater-esque hangout movie of just guys hanging out, uh, making fun of each other and having a good time. And then it, Playing volleyball. Yeah, it's it's dope. It was so good. I, I genuinely have not watched it because I know it's it's a cult thing, but everyone's like, oh, it's, it's good, but it's not that good. And I was I was a little bit surprised by how, how much I enjoyed it. And finally, Criterion announced today that they're finally putting Hirokazu Koreeda's Afterlife out in August, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it has been impossible to find via streaming or physical media forever, except for bootlegs. And it gets like a proper release this year which is very cool you know i've been checking down a lot of movies i bought the shao factory a game of death because it has a hong kong version that i did not see in the criterion and uh eh, 
It's okay. It's a lot of differences. Bruce Lee gets arrested at the end of the picture and it ends with uh, a boat driving off and a, a little bird picture of the real Bruce Lee as a memory. It's okay. I prefer the US version now. now. I got a Super 8 camera now. I just gotta go to a place on Sunset to get it fixed. Can't stop music. I rewatched five times already. It's honestly one of the most brilliant 80s musical of all time. It's got Steve Guttenberg, Kathleen Jenner, Vera Perry, I forgot her name, and the Village People. This movie's got everything. Great music, great dance sequences, a very... <laughs> exploitation scene of the YMCA that they're all in the gym is the most like Top Gun the most homoerotic scene in the whole damn movie and, it, and it's beautiful this movie is glamorous it's pretty it's bright it's colorful it's on 70 millimeter you can get a 70 millimeter print of this movie Edwin would you say that Can't Stop the Music is your Mamma Mia yes <laughs> <laughs> why because there's actual people singing and it's the f***ing village people Boom! There's actual people singing in Mamma Mia. Pierce I don't care. Sings. They sing like crap. I wish when you said boom, Edwin, that you just spontaneously ejected into space like a rocket. Just from your bed. <laughs> boom. Everyone knows Pierce Brosnan is an alien-human hybrid. I got to see my family for the first time. My parents, in like over a year, they visited and we went up to Yosemite. Saw a bear from like 50 feet away. That was cool. Hiked like 10 miles and my legs are still sore. And... You can watch me stream video games at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. So uh, last week, I actually had the opportunity to go to a documentary uh, film event at the Lemley NoHo uh, in North Hollywood. It was a film by writer-director Kate Ryan Brewer called Knots, A Forced Marriage Story. And I went out to actually support my good friend Jasmine Lord, who, among wearing several hats, was the cinematographer on the project. And I was left with just such a powerful, moving experience. Um, it's a documentary that features three women's stories dealing with forced marriage. And it's something I really never was aware that's happening in our country as much as it is. It's always something that you think is in some distant land or this other idea that is not here, but it's literally happening in our backyards every single day. And it's just essentially between parental rights and religion and various government loopholes, something that's happening every day. And I, and I just never realized it to this capacity. And I highly recommend everybody going to see this film and just learning about it. It's a heavier subject, but it's an important subject that really everyone should be aware about. Lemley is now screening it in the virtual cinema. So you can go to Lemley's website now and you can watch it that way. As of next month, there's going to be some further distribution. So you can see it uh, and check out information on knotsthefilm.com. It's K-N-O-T-S, thefilm.com. You can also find them, them at Knots the Film on various social media platforms. But please watch this film, support it. Everyone involved from in front of the camera to behind the camera are really incredible people. And I really want to see this film succeed. So uh, please check it out when you can. I think the thing that you told me that struck me is that it's happening in the United States all the time. It's happening all the time in the United States. Like literally even California, we, we always think we're in a state that everything is fine and great and, you know, not crazy bad things are happening. But again, because of these loopholes, it doesn't sound like it should be possible, but it's being used in a way where, again, these are like religious communities using parental rights and, and various things and the loopholes with like age and government. You're essentially giving people these rights to sell their, and it typically is women and, and young girls this happens to, to just give your daughters away and just be like, no, this is fine, and let the system sort of oppress these women constantly. And it's just the craziest thing ever. And this story is three women's experience, literally growing up in these communities, realizing then now that they're in these forced marriages that are just awful situations, and then how they struggle to get out and what their life looks like to try to navigate now. Two of the women in the story were featured in a Q&A after the event. And it was just so moving to hear even where they are right now. And, you know, one of the women, you know, spoke and said, right now, my husband, quote unquote, is taking care of our kids right now as I'm at this event. And they're in constant, you know, battles with custody. And it's heavy. And I know we generally hear talk about, you know, some of the more fun things with film that we have. But this was a very, very powerful experience. And, and honestly, I, I, everyone really does need to see it because it's an issue I just, again, was not aware that it's happening in our backyards in this country. On a lighter note, I'm going to talk about Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor. I love how that we can say that's the lighter note to transition to, essentially. Feel good movie of uh, 2020. <laughs> well, at least that one's fake. Actually, Connor called this out as one of his favorite movies of 2020 in uh, the podcast. His number one favorite. M my number one favorite as well, for sure. And Brian, all year, has been talking to me about Possessor. 
And I finally got to see it last week. And I think it's great. I definitely think it is a great movie of 2020. I will say that that I went into it very conflicted. And the reason I went into it very conflicted wasn't necessarily because of the subject matter, although then I became conflicted. And it's not. Brandon Cronenberg directed a hell of a movie. And I'm not uptight about this stuff. And the world is so weird and funky. And, you know, if you can get a way to direct a movie and you're talented, you know, then get your opportunity. But the nepotism thing, I do have to say, is something I think about. I think our industry really runs the risk of just being the sons of and the daughters of and you know it's just it's getting to the point where the actors are the kids of former actors and the directors are the kids of former directors and I get why that works, but I think it's a danger. It shouldn't be a closed off industry. I mean, it is. I'm not trying to be pie in the sky. I understand why that is. You know, you, you have access and you have a name and, and it, it's going to sell itself. But this is separate from my feelings about the movie. But I have to get that off my chest. It's like when my mom asked me what I thought about King Philip's or Prince Philip's passing. And I said, look, on one hand, I, I feel sorry for that family and I, I wish them the best. And but. F it. I'm American. I don't give an F about the royal family. Uh, and, and that's just me. And that's I don't want to go on a whole high horse about that. But it, it, it just everyone was going crap. I'm like, how is that death different than the deaths of millions of other people in the world who are in their 90s and have leave, leaving their family? I don't feel any different about it. Um, but anyway, Possessor. It is an amazing film. If you don't know what it's about, audience, you should see it. You can stream it on Hulu. It's a dynamite premise. Basically, in the near future, assassins have technology that allows them to take over another person and commit a murder and not get caught. And then usually they end it by killing themselves so that it looks like some kind of mentally unstable person, but they're killing people in power. And then this uh, assassin, played by Andrea Ricebro, I hope I'm saying her name right, from Mandy, she basically is starting to glitch and have problems. Problems, but she rushes into the next assassination and the host body starts to reject her. And the movie becomes about this fight between the two people in one body. Brandon Cronenberg is the son of David Cronenberg, who got his start making body horror movies. And this is definitely a body horror movie. I learned it was unrated. No surprise. There is graphic sex, graphic violence, all done with a point. I was teetering for a little while. Uh, and I think I've said this. It, I, I mean, I know I've said this a dozen times, and I can only say that when you guys have kids and family, it's like a cliche. My grandparents, who were the like most liberal, open-minded, they were painters, artists in the 60s, they led a crazy life. As they got older, they just would not see violent films. Even though they were, they just wouldn't do it. And they would explain to me, they were like, it hits you differently when you're older. And as a 20-year-old, as a I was like, oh, okay. I just think you guys don't want to go see these great movies. There's something when you know the cost of violence you can't enjoy it anymore. It's something that when, when you have people to protect or people you care about or children, it's no longer enjoyable. And when you see children, as Possessor does, used as plot devices in violent ways, it's mega uncomfortable and you weep. But if you're an artist and a filmmaker, and I've said this before, you got to get over it. The thing that I never want to do is make old man movies. And I don't know how to explain that, but old man movies are where you're just making movies for other 40-year-olds or other 50-year-olds. And you have a very limited audience there because most of the people who go see movies are not yet married, don't have families, and aren't 70. And so you have to make young people movies your whole life. I was, I was really uncomfortable for a lot of the film. And there was this violence, and I was like, I'm just not on this frequency anymore of watching innocent people <laughs> being horribly brutalized. But then the movie becomes this really interesting thing about identity and just like she's addicted to it. She's addicted to taking over other people and it became like a metaphor almost for cinema in a weird way or a metaphor for living vicariously because it gets into gender and identity and sex and, you know, spiritually and psychically violating other people to live their lives. And then I was like, no, this movie is legitimately great. Brandon Cronenberg legitimately made a very stylish, fascinating film, and I'm going to deal with the violence because there has total artistic merit, but it was rough. I think that's the biggest thing, and that's my biggest takeaway from it. Like, I love horror, as a lot of you guys know. I don't tend to go into, like, torture porn type of stuff because I feel like there's absolutely no point, and you're doing it to do it. And that was the one thing about this film that got me really much, is, is it wasn't just to do it. I felt like everything did have a purpose, and there was a lot of more layered elements to it. That even though you were seeing some of these really tough sequences, you're looking again into identity and all these other further layers of this film that I feel like everything done, even as hard as certain sequences are to watch, 
were done in an artful way. And I, I don't know, I just got a lot out of it that I never saw any of it as just like I'm exploiting this or that just to say something that isn't really saying anything. From even just the technical stuff for me, like the film, the, the sound, and the, the, the uh, Jim Williams score is incredible to it. Uh, there are certain sequences, the face swap sequence alone, I rewatched several times because of the way that was just played out. And I don't know, there was just so many different technical elements and the, even just some of the use of practical effects and some of those camera shots that I felt like the entire experience was a very confident filmmaking experience. And it wasn't just this half-assed, I'm going to do this to just do it, torture porn horror which I think is so abundant in that genre, especially. I would say that now of the movies I've seen in 2020, Possessor is the best or one of the best. So I'm going to end this by saying that I agree with you. I think you know when a movie is something special. And Brandon Cronenberg uh, wrote and directed a really fascinating film. I would just tell people buckle up because <laughs> it, it does take it to the limit. I, I actually got to see it in a theater last night, and I had assumed everyone had seen it, you know, just because it's been out for so long. And the very audible gasps through a few of the sequences made me realize that, oh, wow, this is, you know, I'd seen it a few times. So I knew what, what I'm dealing with going in and it definitely still shocks a few people. So buckle up is definitely a good phrase, but it's a well worth ride for sure. Spiral from the Book of Saw is also out in theaters. <laughs> I want to see it. I like those movies. Oh, I love, I love Saw. I don't mind the torture porn. I mean, I think it's a different thing. I mean, Saw movies are like goofy as hell. They're like. It's it's horror soap opera. And yeah. That, but we, yeah, we could go on forever. <laughs> like, I'm a fan of Eli Roth's Hostel. I haven't seen Hostel too, but I just want to make it clear. To me as a filmmaker, you have to be open to seeing everything, especially as a programmer. But as a filmmaker, you can't say, well, I'm no longer seeing this or I just think that's the death of creativity and the death of being open-minded and the death of originality. So I really appreciate you guys pushing me. I, I will just tell you, <laughs> though, I had to push through that film because there were a few points where I was like, Wah. Now watch like American Utopia or something to cleanse the palate. Totally. American <laughs> Utopia, highly recommend. It's amazing. David Byrne is incredible. All right, guys. Every episode that you listen to is edited by our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. Next week, actually, we're going to do part two of our pieces of cinema, aspects of cinema series. We're going to dive into editing, editing's contribution to cinema. In fact, many would argue, and I would, I would be one of them, that editing is actually the one element of cinema that is unique to cinema, as opposed to any other art form. It's a little tease connection back to what we just said. I'm going to talk about Hostel next week because it has one of my favorite cuts in any movie ever. So there you go. So stay tuned. And then this weekend, by the time you hear this on Friday, Friday night, we're going to be doing Last Jedi at the drive-in. Come for the chaos that's going to ensue there. Nobody who hates The Last Jedi owns a car. <laughs> They're not going to be there. Then Saturday, uh, we are going to be doing our million-dollar theater opening at the Movie Palace downtown. We're doing Scarface Carlito's Way on 35. Daniel, a new Secret Movie Club team member, Josh Oakley, and myself literally are hanging surround speakers for that in this movie palace so we'd love to have you and then saturday night we're doing get carter point blank on 35 millimeter and then sunday we're doing moana so there you go enough have a great week you can follow everything we do at secretmovieclub.com you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com or podcast at secretmovieclub.com all right have a great week guys thank you brian for coming thanks guys bye, bye citizen later y'all